On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. D.G. Hart and Dr. Miles Smith IV about post-war liberalism and all sorts of topics related to it. So we cover all sorts of ideas and things like, what in the world does post-war liberalism mean? Does it have any real referent, or is it just a pejorative term? What's going on there? How does it maybe differ from things like Wilsonian idealism and other ideas? How do the events of the 60s and the 70s and others uh, play into where we are today? So think about Vietnam, civil rights, sexual revolution, etc. How do those factors influence where we're at in our current moment? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and we are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking uh, for a serious church. And one way we've tried to do that is to encourage and cultivate an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. We think we live in a time when the church needs better answers, and the answers that we need to find don't require like hot takes. They need to be thought through well and with with in community and with friends who can challenge each other because oftentimes uh, we're much more open to our views being pushed and pr- a little bit prodded when we have a friendship or a relationship with people. So we try to encourage those sort of things. And today I'm thrilled to introduce you all to Dr. D.G. Hart and Dr. Miles Smith. And Miles, I think you're the fourth and I probably should have properly pronounced added that in my introduction. Anyway, I'm excited to talk to both of them uh, about post-war liberalism and related things. I think this is a topic that seems to, at least on the internet, come up a whole lot more frequently over the last 5, 10, 15 years. It seems that I see it now every day that every problem with America's political governance has its origin in some post-war liberal issue. So I'm excited to learn uh, about what all that means and what all is fact or fiction or a little bit in between. So before we get started, um, Daryl, would you just give me like brief intro who you are? Um, maybe give me a 30 second origin story of why you care about history or got into it. Th- thanks. Good to be with you. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm a cheerful conser- confessional, a confessional. I don't know. Um, I'm probably more <laughs> curmudgeonly, which but curmudgeonliness makes me cheerful, whatever that says. So I I was a film studies major as an undergrad in my misspent youth at Temple University. But I took a lot of courses in Shakespeare and also in uh, some British history. And so that made me think when one of my professors told me that only 4% of independent filmmakers, which is what I wanted to be, can support themselves. I said, well, maybe history is a backup. Um, and then that didn't work out directly. I was hoping for tuition remission at Temple. They had too many white guys working, straight white guys working in the law library even then. So I went to Westminster Seminary and then became um, fascinated by church history and British history. The British history I was interested in was oftentimes reformational. And then I went to Harvard Divinity School and read J. Gresson Machen's Christianity Liberalism uh, for the first time, even though I'd gone to Westminster Seminary. And that's when I sort of shifted into U.S. uh, topics and subjects. So I teach all over the place 
which Hillsdale allows us to do, um, but primarily American religion, American politics, American intellectual history. Awesome. There's like six things you said that I could make. I'd like to make fun of. Uh, though That's I think fine. It's fascinating that, like My you said, my wife's away. I need to be made fun of. <laughs> Westminster's not requiring to read Machen. Like, how is that possible? Well, b- back in the day, um, the, the West Westminster was for a long time the OPC seminary informally, and they would have assumed that students would have read it already coming in. But then they began to expand to include evangelicals like me or fundamentalists even like me. And, um, and so I didn't have any awareness of Machen. So you're a fundamentalist? I was, I grew up there. Dispensationalist church. I, I, I won two Schofield reference Bibles in uh, various vacation Bible school endeavors or whatever. I know the Schofield reference, but I went to Liberty for my undergrad, residentially, actually, so not like one of the online people. And Schofield was required for, those Bibles were required for my courses. Wow. Um, Miles, tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I uh, I had a pretty standard, I think, undergraduate experience at the College of Charleston and in Charleston. It was a great place, and it was, history was kind of all around you, and so I probably shouldn't admit this, but I didn't think a lot about history living in perhaps the most historic city, um, definitely in the Southern United States and not the United States in general. And so I, I, uh, I came at it cause I was interested in Europe. I think I got interested in history because I was interested in Europe. And I was particularly interested in, in 19th century Europe and the rise of nationalism, the rise of liberalism, um, uh, the rise of democracy, on the European continent. So I, I sort of started out there and then came back to the United States uh, when I studied abroad in Italy because I realized what a rich, not just experience in undergrad I'd have, but my I, I grew up in central North Carolina in kind of an older town called Salisbury. So there was just a lot of not just history, but religious history and, and sort of political history around me. My hometown had churches from the 1730s and a Confederate prison. Um, so I sort of uh, discovered the history of my own space after I had gone to, to do a semester abroad in Europe. Um, and so I went to grad school uh, to study um, the United States, but also to study Latin America and the intersections of nationalism and liberalism in, in the middle of the 19th century. So that was what I, I was going to do. And I kind of got a good talking to from my dissertation advisor, who's like, just make yourself an Americanist because you want work. And I, it worked, sounded pretty good. <laughs> Uh, and so I, um, I, I became an Americanist. And so I teach mainly the 19th century classes here. I teach Jacksonian era and the Civil War and the Gilded Age. And every once in a while, I'll sneak sort of 19th century Latin America. And so that's, that's basically what I do. I don't think I overlap with any of Daryl's classes. I don't think uh, I, we, we don't teach any of the same, same thing. So. That's awesome. Well, I think I could probably spend the whole episode just talking about you guys background but i want to know i keep seeing this terminology whether it's post-war liberalism or just like everything after world war ii seems to have shifted with america the american vision of politics and even the way people read older confessions so like i see people will say prior to world war ii they understood the westminster confession to teach x about the civil government to and to view the american revolution and founding and particular way why but then after this world war ii period era things completely shifted 
So I'm trying to just understand, I guess, first of all, what is this concept of post-war liberalism? Is it monolithic? Is there a way that I should understand it? Are there figures related to it? Those sort of things. Um, I don't know who wants to jump on that first. Well, I, I think I, I don't like the term post-war liberalism because it assumes that there is a change in how people read liberalism that happens because of World War II. And my proposition would be that it's actually war in court liberalism. The, the way that the, the change in the interaction between civil order and religion, I think is more of a product of the 1960s than it is the post-war era. Dwight Eisenhower, it's funny because he's the progenitor, he's sort of the origin of the war in court in a lot of ways. And yet 1953 is a very different place than 1965 in the United States. So. I don't really buy it as post-war. I don't know if the the, the 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 Second World War changes much in itself because really there's a lot of things that are consistent with the 1950s in America that are happening in the 1980s that are happening in the 1990s. So I don't I don't I don't really buy it as a monolith, and I'm not really sure what makes people think that there's a post-war liberalism other than the baby boom. If that's what people see as the source of post-war liberalism, okay, maybe. I don't know if the baby boom itself changes anything. So Daryl may have a lot of better takes than I, than I do on that. I mean, I guess I think of um, certain professors at, at Columbia, New York intellectuals more generally, talking about liberalism – uh, and, and liberal tradition in the 50s, which may speak to some of what you're asking about, Jordan. And, and I do think part of what, what defines it maybe as different from what was before is the Cold War. And so you have these, this polarized world between the free world, the liberal world, and the totalitarian or communist world in the minds of a lot of people making arguments about um, the best societies, but also the United States role in the world as, to, as the leader of the free world. And, and that, <clears throat> so you, I, I think there's a consensus about liberalism in a way in the fifties into the sixties that begins to unravel with um, civil rights movement, um, feminism, sexual revolution, the protests about Vietnam. Um, and so there's some pushback during those decades, but the United States comes through it relatively okay. And the Cold War, um, uh, I guess, dichotomy still persists into the Reagan era. And I think you would have Democrats and Republicans still – uh, identifying with a liberal order of some kind. I mean, they would emphasize different parts of it, more free market, more government subsidies for um, people who are uh, marginal in society. But you know, there's a general defense of that. And, you know, what happens in the post-Cold War world from 1990 on, um, it seems to me that, that the United States becomes much more polarized and um, – but it's only, and I, I mean, I think maybe the seeds are planted for what we're seeing now. 
with a number of thinkers, Christians among them, maybe especially among them, but then people on the left as well talking about how pernicious liberalism is. So you have a variety of people talking about a post-liberal um, society, a post-liberal church. And I mean, I attribute a lot of that to Trump, reactions to Trump, um, and uh, you know, thinking of Patrick Deneen as a as an author who is very critical of the liberal tradition, even though he had been part of a defender of it in a way, a, a responsible defender of it, not in glowing terms. And then Christian nationalists, Protestants among them, coming along and making a case for why there needs to be a return to an older Protestant understanding of um, politics that's really pre, not pre-World War II, but much more pre-American Revolution even. Um, so that's how I come at that question. I do teach post-Cold War America here when I wear my 20th century America hat. Um, it's a great course to teach, although it's also more like journalism than it is history because we still don't have historical perspective on, I mean, I guess we're have, beginning to have some on 9-11 now that it's 22 or three years away. Two, 22 years away from us, but usually historians say you need about 35 years to get a decent sense of something. And so we, we you know, we're going to wait for a while to get a decent perspective on the election of 2016. Um, but that's still a pretty important piece of the United States recent history. Can I, can I jump Go in? Go ahead, Bob. So I, I think that when we talk about liberalism, it's it's compelling to me. We, we sort of, so many definitions are floating around. And so when you think about politics, I just want, I, I want to talk about sort of like the brass tacks of what is liberal politics. Because I think about a, a Supreme Court case very few people know about, um, Griswold v. Connecticut, which, Jordan, have you heard of that? I don't know kind of if it's in the ether or not. Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965 where the Supreme Court uh, rules, and this is interesting because we, this sounds like something that should have been happening in the 19th century, but it's happening in the 1960s. Griswold v. Connecticut is the case where the Supreme Court said that states couldn't prohibit married couples from using contraception. And so that's, in the, that's the case up until 1965. That sounds like some sort of antiquated era. So people hear that and they say, wait, the state could tell you in 1965, that you can't use contraception. They can tell married people that. That's in the United States. That's not. That's not colonial Boston. That's not 14th century, you know, Italy. That's Connecticut. And so I think when we frame sort of like what is liberalism, oftentimes there's there's a tendency to almost say well, liberalism is whatever the current sort of kind of sociosexual mores. Uh, of my given year are. That's liberalism, and anything behind it is illiberal. And so I don't think of Connecticut in 1965 as being a theocratic place, and my guess is that <laughs> your listeners wouldn't either. Um, and so is, is Connecticut, before Griswold v. Connecticut, theocratic? Is it illiberal? And if your answer is yes, then I guess liberalism starts in 1965. And so I think this is an important question to get at because so many people, especially you think you think of 
uh, a Baptist, um, right? You don't have en masse Baptist riots about Connecticut state government prohibiting this, right? You don't, you don't have sort of disestablishmentarian up in arms. So what does it actually mean to be a liberal? Seems an important question when we approach, especially sexual stuff, because that's actually the core of this conversation, right? People are saying the world's gone crazy. They look at the post-Oberfeld world and they're saying, oh, liberalism caused this. Right. Well, I don't know. I think of Connecticut in the 1960s as a pretty liberal place as the, the broad West goes. So I think that's something to think about. What is it to be liberal um, in the context of the sexual revolution, which is so much of the energy behind this question to begin with? Yeah, no, that does seem to be to be part of the, the energy behind it. This we look at the state of things. We don't like the state of things. When was when was it better and different? And how do I get back there? Can I just add to that Connecticut point, too? Um, William F. Buckley Jr., who's a graduate of Yale, which is in Connecticut, um, writes a book in 1950-51, God and Man at Yale, and he's very critical of Yale for abandoning religion, for abandoning uh, defense of free markets, and in some ways abandoning a defense of the American founding. Now, William F. Buckley is an odd Roman Catholic, but he is a Roman Catholic. He's also the founder in, in many, many respects of the, the modern American conservative movement. And the, the Yaleys who responded to Buckley pretty much put him down as a Roman Catholic authoritarian type. So this goes to the the liberal side of Connecticut establishment, those people at Yale probably were comfortable with the restrictions on contraception that, that Roman Catholics would have also been very comfortable with. Um, and so, you know, you have competing liberalism, competing restrictions, be, be, depending on whether you're a mainline Protestant or a Roman Catholic. But, I mean, Griswold does indicate a shift more generally among Protestant elites in the United States, and they begin to liberalize in that way, at least for a time. But as to back up what Miles was saying, they were pretty liberal back in the 50s as well, and saw Roman Catholics as authoritarian as a, and as a threat to the United States. Yeah, I think that, you know, you think about the 1950s, what it's presented to a lot of people is that Dwight Eisenhower is the conservative against Adelaide Stevenson in the 1952-1956 elections. Well, it's interesting, those are before so many of the landmark cases on things like sexuality and women's rights. And so there's actually not a place where you can identify Dwight Eisenhower as meaningfully more socially conservative than Adelaide Stevenson. And so Daryl's right, like you, you, you have almost a vision of competing liberalisms. And I think in some ways in, in the United States, that's what it is. It's two visions of liberalism going at each other. In every generation, there's kind of a new permutation of it. Got it. So how, how do other events like Vietnam and then the civil rights and JFK and others, how, do, how does this, the events of the 60s and et cetera, accelerate some of these changes and impact some of them, make some of them? Well, I mean, one way to answer that is civil rights legislation passed 
in 64 and then especially 65 and codified in all the sort of title mm-hmm. nine and beyond legislation. Christopher Caldwell, a journalist um, of a kind, has written a book about the 60s and the way that civil rights legislation became part of the uh, federal law and uh, administrative apparatus and and the protection of certain um, aggrieved groups. And there are, I guess, lists. I've never I, – I know some people have talked about it, but I've never – looked at that. But there are people who are designated, groups of people in the United States who are designated as deserving special protections. Uh, and, and that then creates a whole cottage industry of advocacy groups and law offices and even administ- administrative bureaucracies at state, local, federal levels to support this. And I mean, that is, for me, reading Caldwell... Michael Lind is another uh, guy who writes about this, whether he's a historian or not. But, you know, apart from the headlines, apart from the culture war, pieces of the the changes that are happening with, say, greater access to contraception and greater liberty or or greater sexual freedom, which is what a lot of people are are advocating, and then, of course, uh, less, fewer restrictions on blacks – Aside from whatever the headaches may be on the surface coming out of those changes, what's happening in courts, what's happening in law, what's happening in it, in uh, administration at different levels is really quite extraordinary. And I don't know that that full story has been told as well as these two figures, uh, Christopher Caldwell and Michael Lind, have been recently Writing, and there are many others who have written about it as well. But those are those are the two authors that that come to mind, and and so it's it's if if people today in the United States, um, and coming out of two or so years of lockdowns for Ooh. public health, seeing what a governor in New Mexico is now doing with the Bill of Rights, um, if if people think the United States is teetering on some kind of a liberal, illiberal uh, set of laws or policies, and that government is um, taking away my freedoms, um, th- th- these access to that kind of power, I think, has been going on for a while. That's part of what I'm trying to say. And it's been happening since, since the 60s. Uh, and it wasn't because the, the radicals who were going to college and, and engaged in the campus protests eventually got jobs, and then they did it in the 1990s, say, w- w- the march through the institutions. The march was happening well before that in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, thanks to just the way bureaucracy works. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I mean, I agree with everything Cyril said. I think some some of this this idea that we're in a particularly post-liberal moment, it's fed by people who desperately want to believe we're in a particularly sensational moment when it comes to government power. I mean, I, I think about the presence in, in um, yeah, I remember reading, Cyril, you may have had to read this book too, David Kennedy's book on the 50s and, and the, the work of David Haverstam to kind of on the mid-century and they're almost, the point of it is to sort of that is almost, I think, inferentially like, hey, the 50s weren't perfect. There was all there's all this stuff 
that was going on with, you know, obviously African-Americans didn't have rights and, you know, the, a lot of urban poor were kind of left behind the prosperity. What's interesting is how much you can hear a sort of like a Trumpist sort of American carnage dialectic in a little bit of those works. But of course, now the idea would almost be to baptize the 50s as the height of liberal success, right? Um, of course, you would want to include the 60s because that's where the sort of aggregate of civil rights legislation is, is, is actuated and whatnot. But what's happening now is I think a lot of this is really just because, I don't want to get too reductionist, but it's, it's, it's partisan, right? right? A certain group of people sort of loses power. And so, okay, now the 50s are bad. But in the 80s, there was kind of like conservatives tended to sort of baptize the 50s. Uh, because they were good. They were, that was the nuclear family. Um, and now there's this sort of proposition that the nuclear family actually has failed. And so it seems to be driven not so much even by the historiography. Daryl's done a good job laying it out. But so much of the question of liberalism is, is driven not by actual books about liberalism or questions about liberalism or even a definition of what liberalism is, it's driven by a sort of a rhetorical construction of what liberalism is vis-a-vis -vis certain people not being able to actuate for a certain given reef of political or of policies or something like that. Is this making sense, Jordan? I mean, yes. to with the kind of, because you, we have all been part of email exchanges. I'm not sure if we should let the, listeners in yeah. <laughs> open reveal you know pull back the curtain but you know and and we and I was struggling I think Miles was somewhat too with where this phrasing was coming from so I'm, I am just curious if and obviously you're the you're in charge you're driving this recording so you can say well wait a minute but I am curious whether it's kind of tracking in some way with what you're hearing I, I think part of the main question for me I mean I I'm not the historian of this era, so I, I don't know all the answers. And that's part of the reason that I'm trying to figure it out and asking you guys, because you guys know these periods better than I do. Um, it seems that there is just a common thread among more recent literature that I've seen to where there, it paints this sort of like dividing line that happens post-World War II to where America used to be like this. It used to be a Christian nation. It used to be, you know, have mm. blue laws. It used to have all the, like a sort of like a, a moral conscience of some sort. And now we've lost that. And that's because of how we shifted to think about virtually everything, whether that's church relation to the politics or whatever. Yeah. And so much of this, I think, is based on a chronological, is based on chronological ignorance by lay people. I'm not trying to not, I'm trying to not trying to, to say that only scholars have this right, but a lot of the stuff that people think went wrong in era X actually had nothing to do with era X. So like blue laws is, is something that's identified with the post-war era. Jordan, you might be, I think you're from North Carolina. Yeah. Well, no, I'm not, but I, I've been here. Yeah. You've been here a long time. Well, guess what? In the 1980s, there's a lot of stuff that was still closed on on sundays you can remember the pharmacists they had everything roped off except for the drugs i remember that in, in, in my home county all that stuff went away in like 1994 right so like i mean not with the state store system in pennsylvania fella yeah, yeah that's well yeah well of course like I, you know both our home states have these alcohol monopolies and 
if you you know you know what the ABC store is. So right, is is this a, is that is the alcohol monopoly that Virginia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania have? Is that pre-liberal? I don't know, uh, but it's a good question because does this mean that liberalism began when Newt Gingrich came to power? Uh, you know, uh, so I think that's actually an important question because for sort of both sides, the type of person who wants to baptize the given moment and the type of person who wants to have everything be a golden age, there's a shifting chronology of what is actually when liberal begins and when it doesn't begin. And you kind of go around this so almost, uh, I don't want to say like a merry-go-round, but again and again and again, the, the, the dates are shifted. And so you know, the definition of liberalism is hard enough to pin down. The definition of when liberalism messes everything up seems even harder. And I think that's purposeful, right? Um, because if your point is we have to go back to some idealized X and I'm the guy purveying literature about idealized X, then you sort of have a high ground established that is unassailable. Yeah. So I guess part of the impetus is just as I look at, I mean, I'm, I'm more of a theologian and philosopher than I'm a historian. I mean, I love history, but I'm just, I don't want to become better equipped at it. But there's, it, over the last 10 years, post-Trump, there has been a significant increase in theologian or pastors being becoming more interested in like, well, I want to change my vision of politics. And, it, and then it ends up subsuming all sorts of other theological doctrines. And so we've got a lot of our listeners here who are listening and they're thinking, I see this, like, I hear it all the time. Pastors who are telling me they have church members who are getting, you know, radicalized by various visions of like, well, this is the golden era. We go back to the 18th, 19th century, whatever it is. And we had this vision of Christian engagement. And now we have something totally different. And if you want to get that back, you've got to go over here to Moscow or wherever the place is. And so I'm trying. That would be Idaho, not Russia, right? Okay. Th that's right. Well, yeah. Well, it could be either, I guess, theoretically. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm going to say something that I think this is this is evangelical brain. The evangelicals always have this sort of next level more energy. It doesn't matter what where they come down, what their political theology is. So you can you can find the most hard and fast spirituality of church guy who's really convinced that the spirituality of the church is going to save the church. And you can find another guy who's really convinced that theocracy is going to save the church. I mean, my own disposition is sort of, a, dare I say, a sort of mainline blasé adiaphora on all this stuff. And what's funny is it actually keeps me from having to really get political theology right. By not baptizing one or the other, it actually allows me to say, eh, I don't know. We're going to go to church. We're going to do the prayer for the whole state. That's what Anglicans do. That's our Christian nationalist thing we do every week. You know, we pray for Joe Biden as a part of our Christian nationalism. You know, um, we sing the fourth verse of my country, tis of thee. And we do that no matter who's president. You do that no matter who's president. So what's interesting to me is that so much of this, I think, proves to me that evangelicalism has always been sociopolitical. It's not theological to begin with. And so that completely explains why, guess what? Trump got elected and everyone rethought their political theology. Who gives a deuce whether he got elected? Why should that make you rethink anything? So that's my, that's my mean 
cranky Anglican take on it. Hey, I thought I was the curmudgeon. Yeah. Twenty sixteen is a great time to write books to make money. So there you go. There's my there's yeah, my Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I, I think that, that we've I mean, evangelicalism, as much of it's a socio political identity, is a commercial one too. And you're right. It's really helpful to write books. And you, listen, as long as Trump's in political life, we're going to hear more of these books about how so-and-so learned that hit, that people learned that politicians were hypocrites in 2016. <laughs> like, you didn't know that before, champ? Come on. So, all right. Richard Nixon just never, never was yeah. part, of, part of the... But, but uh, so, I mean, to push back a little bit, Miles, so what... I agree with what you were saying, by the way, that um, it's adiaphora. But then <clears throat> you have some fairly strong political views, uh, I think. I mean, we've had conversations. So what is your perspective on making those or the basis for your making those judgments? I think so. I think that ultimately, I mean, and you, yeah, and you, I don't think it has to be theology, but I do think yeah. a lot of Christians think, I've got to go to the Bible or I've got to have it come from some kind of theological understanding because that's the most important, yeah. important part of my life. I would expose myself. I'm, I'm not a very good biblicist. Like, I please don't get your politics from the Bible. That'll be the worst place to get it from. Uh, because there's this whole thing called literally 2,000 years of Western history that's just as good. In a lot of ways. So a lot of people say, well, that sounds like you don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture. No, that's not what I said. I just said, I don't think that the Bible is the best place for a programmatic understanding of politics. If it is for you, great. If it's under, if it's a programmatic understanding for your anti-politic, great. I'm just not a biblicist. So I don't think I need the Bible to teach me politics. But, but I think what's important, perhaps, about that position is that um, you have to sort of identify, come to terms with 2,000 years of history or at least 250 years and figure out what the better political arrangements may or may not be. And if you like the founding, which I do, and that kind of liberal political tradition, which it is liberal, especially given the history of the West before that, um, so, so that means that you have to sort through what the different political positions are rather than what seems to be the approach of a lot of Christians for a while, not just now of, okay, I'm a kind of conservative, whatever this, and now I'm going to find that in the Bible right. and that's going to justify my position instead of saying, no, you know, politics comes first, sorry to the Bible, but that does come first seems to me when adjudicating uh, political problems, when you want to adjudicate human nature or sin or God and what God requires, those are theological judgments. But, and those have, you know, they, they are, if, you know, Madison said, if men were angels, so we're getting right into human nature and what do we need government to do and what, do we want to keep government from doing because we know that men are not angels? So we put all sorts of checks and balances in the constitutional uh, order. Um, so it's not as if, you know, the Bible doesn't speak in indirect ways to these right. questions. But 
for me as as somebody who's kind of a libertarian but in the sense of a american founding small government jeffersonian type i still i mean i think that um jefferson was worried about standing armies i mean a lot of the founders were uh, they were worried about um, a foreign policy that would take the United States into foreign wars, especially European wars. Um, and where, where do we find ourselves for the last 70 years? We're, we're all in up to there. So what is that going to do to our liberties, the kind of liberties that were secured at the time of the founding? And I mean, that for me is, you know, gets into foreign policy and America first and American um, hegemony and I, I, I think a world order is important and I think having good countries try to uh, uphold a world order is also important. It's part of the way the, the world has worked for more than 2,000 years. So I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be naive about that. Someone's going to do it. So the United States, if it's going to pull back, better be smart about it. But still, our place in the world is uh, out of sync, I think, with our founding. And our place in the world also uh, came at a time in the post-war sense, Jordan, that you've started us talking about. I, I mean, I do think that, that the American um, government and security state apparatus, both to protect the United States, but then also to protect American interests around the world, was part and parcel of giving greater rights and liberties to aggrieved groups so that they could participate in this system to make America as unified as possible to fight the Cold War and, and, and beyond. You know, you don't want people opting out of that system. Um, so I'm not saying it was cynical. I think there, was, there were legitimate reasons for doing that as well. But a lot of those changes in uh, legal <clears throat> uh, and civil rights I think the Cold War and America's um, involvement in the Cold War makes sense of some of those changes in order to, again, shore up America's uh, measure of, of social order, coherence and peace at, at the home front. Um, and, you know, now that we're we're not fighting the Cold War, but we are kind of fighting the Cold War still. I mean, that's still a kind of pattern that we have, whether it be. Russia, whether it be Islam, political Islam, whether it be China, the United States learned how to think about itself and the world and the rest of the world in a kind of Cold War pattern. And that does still, I think, inform um, at least federal officials, which who are the ones who are supposed to be worried about foreign policy. I, th I think I, I agree with a lot of what Daryl said. I, I'm probably more Hamiltonian in that I like Eastern commercial cities dispositionally, um, or now Texas. Right. I mean, I, yeah. Um, and so I, I don't think I, I can't do really do the agrarian thing. Yeah. 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 So I, I don't think I'm a very good agrarian for a variety of reasons. Um, I think that when I think about the way, especially Christians talk about politics, American empire, whatnot, I, I um, I wonder if empire is an inevitability. And so sort of to what Daryl said, it says somebody's got to keep order worldwide. Might as well be the American one. But gosh, do we have to do it the way we do it? Um, <laughs> and, and I think about the way that Christians, particularly self-identified evangelicals, talk about American government. I, I think the Ukraine war is a good example. I, I think I'm dispositionally on the side of the Ukraine. I believe in 
in, in national self-determination. That's good. But what's ha- what seems to me is there's, there's an idea that, that an evangelical worldview leads you to baptize one of these as sort of dispositionally God's people, not really God's people, but God's definitely on their side, and one of them is not. And the delineation for that is that one of them is at least approaching market democratic liberalism more than the other. Well, there are more Baptists in Ukraine than Russia, too. No, but, and that's actually true, right? And you think about the, the amount of adoptions that are done by evangelicals from the Ukraine. So huh. I, I think in my mind, why don't we just say I tend to I give the nod to the group that is trying to uphold national self-determination? Why does there have to be a why do you have to Bible that answer? Why yeah. on earth do you have to Bible that? So, Miles, I mean, I'm with you. I'm not a biblicist, and may, I mean, maybe you'd be like Jordan. You're a biblicist because of X, you're Y, and Z. Jordan, so uh, <laughs> no, that's 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 not that's not actually true. I'm, that's uh, a true so I, I I mean I think there's a I think a lot of people would say yeah yeah I hear what you're saying but there's still a sense of they want to say there are theological principles or things that can apply across the board. So the Bible says, do not murder. I can take that. And yeah, maybe that's a natural law principle. You'd say, well, I don't need the Bible for that. I can get that elsewhere. But people would still say, well, I can, it's, it's much clearer and easier for me to go to the Bible and get some of these sort of like natural law principles and then project that onto my society and require to do that. And they'd say, that's a good thing. It, and so in some ways, it's at least epistemologically useful to have the Bible helping me out and working in this in this way here. So so what is what's the controlling principle in keeping that from becoming theonomy? Uh, well, I have no idea. Yeah. So I think that that's that's I think when I when I think about the, 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 the way that a sort of biblicism turns into a, a rhetorical theocratic dispositions, I don't think everybody does that. I think why? Because ultimately, they kind of trust liberalism as a control on their reading of the Bible. And that's not necessarily wrong, but you're not really being a biblicist anymore, are we? We're being American liberals. And that's not a bad thing. I, I like liberalism. I'm a liberal. Lord Macaulay is a hero of mine. Um, Francois Guzot is a hero of mine. People don't know who they are, but uh, they're heroes of mine. Um, I think I'm a liberal. What I don't think is that I'm a 20th century biblicist who reads liberalism a specific way. And so I think in as much as that's become the sort of Christian definition of liberalism, that's where the tension is. And for, for at least someone like me who likes Daniel Moynihan, he's a hero of mine. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's where the tension is, right? Okay. So tell me, how much does like Wilsonian idealism play into these downstream impacts that we start seeing later on in the 50s, 60s, 70s. I'm reading Barry Hankins' book uh, right now. Um, Daryl probably has a better answer. I'm, I'm changing a little bit on what I think about Wilson because of this book. It's it's a very good book. I think you know him, Daryl. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm sort I, of changing I, a little bit. I mean, I locate Wilson in the progressive tradition, and I I think uh progressives were theologically generally modernists 
and that meant that they had bought into modernist ideas of adapting Christianity to the modern world, but also that God was working his ways through the advancement of Western society, uh, Western civilization. And I think for whatever reason, World War I didn't put a dent in that. The Great Depression and World War II did put a dent in that. So in the history of theology, at least in, among mainline Protestants, you go into a period after, well, in the late 30s into the 50s of neo-Orthodoxy and the appeal of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, less so Karl Barth, although Karl Barth does make it onto the cover of Time magazine in 1962, I think. But that's a more restrained view. I mean, I just reading a piece with my class in American religion yesterday um, about Reinhold Niebuhr being President Obama's favorite theologian. There are all those kinds of references. So, I, I mean, I think that Niebuhr and and that tradition kind of put a um, a bit of a, a pin in the bubble of Wilson's idealism. I still think there's plenty of idealism. You listen to President Biden at times talking about the war in Ukraine. There's a lot of Wilsonian idealism still, a lot of promotion of democracy still. So th it's still there, but there have been people in the State Department, people in so-called swamp or whatever, um, who are more realist as well. And that would be what Niebuhr represents. When it comes to domestic policies, though, I mean, you know, the constant attack on Wilson now is that he was – an outright racist, and he and he made the federal government even more racist. So I don't think there are many uh, domestic issues that people run to uh, Wilson for. Sorry to end a sentence in a preposition. Um, and you know, I think for domestic policies, I do think that New Deal, uh, New Deal liberalism is different from Wilsonian in some ways, and the response to the crisis of of depression is really important for getting a welfare state going. And I don't know that, you know, I think we'd associate that much more with FDR than with, with Wilson. And I still think that's clearly around. We're having debates now about, um, uh, especially after COVID and the kind of um, restrictions on work and the, and the government bailouts of people who could not work. Uh, and then on top of that, debates about immigration and where those people can get jobs or not. Um, a lot of those issues are still very much with us. And I don't know that anyone's necessarily following the playbook of, of uh, New Deal Democrats at that point either. Um, but I don't, th I, I don't think that Wilson, aside from foreign policy idealism, is as much a, a presence. Well, I, I want to know, this is the last thing I need to know from you guys before I, I close up shop. Where can people go to read all the works that you guys are writing and doing? Because um, I know a lot of our listeners uh, are probably interested in these sort of topics and would like to, number one, read your stuff, and number two, uh, have good recommendations of where to go. Yeah, I I, uh, I blog a lot at F. Fontes. I write for National Review semi-regularly. Um, and so that's kind of Kind of my stuff is more looking at the 19th century. I'm really more interested in where, um, where the shift is uh, away from, especially in education. I've been looking at colleges a lot. I've been pouring over college catalogs from 1820 to 1870 um, and learning a lot. But yeah, I'm kind of doing 
that stuff at Ad Fontes. I'll have a book out with Davenant here in the next um, next months, hopefully. So awesome. Um, so yeah, yeah. I'm, I I used to blog a lot at something called Old Life, and I've been trying to write a little bit more there. But um, there, I also co-edit. Uh, a journal, a, a newsletter called the Nicotine Theological Journal, which comes out online. But, um, but I think for the books I've written, uh, I think of American Catholic, which is about the Roman Catholic origins of the conservative movement in post post World War II America. Um, I've written a, a, a spiritual biography in the same series that um, Barry Hankins' book on Wilson is in. But it's on Ben Franklin, a guy who I really admire uh, among the founders um, on so many levels. And then also I've written a book about H.L. Mencken, a uh, journalist, literary critic, libertarian, whose, whose political instincts I really trust oftentimes, even though he lives in a different era. So if people wanted to look for those books, they would at least get a read on some of the um, the people I interact with and 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 follow awesome well i'm gonna have to have you both on back or even do specific episodes with both you guys because i want to have more time with you but uh, i appreciate you guys doing this this was a lot of fun i recommend you all to check out their work to support them to follow along with what they do and thanks everybody for listening to the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we'll talk to you guys soon when you visit arizona Time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.